Hey, Chloe. Hello. What's happening? What's up? Nice to see you. Nice to see you too. Where are you? I'm home. Oh, you don't, yeah, that's right. You're not practicing with yoga work. If you would, this is where exactly where I teach. Here's my mat. Although this would be pushed back there. I teach here. I work my day job right there. My girlfriend teaches dance at, I think, four colleges. And so when she's teaching, she's in here and I'm out there. So she teaches with all this background and such. And, um, and so we have this sort of like dance of working from home, no pun intended dance, but a dance of working from home where we, you know, have to navigate each other's schedules. And, uh, but this is, this is the room where it all happens. <laughs> it's, where, it's where everything happens on, on my work, even though I don't really consider teaching yoga work. Uh, that's where it all, that's where it all happens. Nice. I love the space. We got a lot of music paraphernalia going on in the background. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's you know, a large part of my, a small, this is a small amount of a bit of a collector's obsession with everything to do with music and concerts and vinyl and all sorts of things. What was the first concert you've been to? The very first concert I went to was September 24th, 1983, Billy Squire. And the opening band was Rat. And uh, Joe Perry from Aerosmith came out with Rat. And I was this was in Boston. So Aerosmith are, you know, sort of patron saints of rock and roll in Boston if not in general. And Joe Perry from Aerosmith came out and did a tune called Walking the Dog with Rat. And I lost my voice for four days, my first concert. <laughs> yeah. Who would you see dead or alive? Your dream show. My dream show. I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's hard to name only one. It really is. I would very much, I mean, uh, you can see behind me, I got two and a half related Allman Brothers posters. I would love to see the original lineup of the Allman Brothers at the Fillmore East in 1970, 71. That would be, because uh, they've lost a few of their members uh, since then. Uh, but yeah, that would be, that would be the, that would be the dream. But then I would also love to see the original lineup of Zeppelin, the only lineup of Zeppelin, really, um, you know, with Bonham in probably, 75 right around there that would be great but there's i could if i thought if i keep thinking about this i'll just keep rattling off there'd be lots of them there'd be lots of, I, I would love to see would love to see miles back in the day with like the original kind of blue lineup any of those classic miles bebop albums i would love to i would love to see that lineup it would just be like a, a staring up at the stage mouth agape can you imagine seeing Miles in an underground speakeasy in Harlem with 50 people and no one knows who he is yet? I daydream about those types of situations. I can imagine it, but I bet my imagination doesn't come close to how tremendous of an experience it would be. Yeah. When I used to live in New York, I was walking home one night at maybe 2.30 in the morning and I heard a saxophone playing out yonder and I just followed the trail and it led me to the East Village and there was this guy, he was probably world-class, just there playing his saxophone on the stoop of a brownstone. And it made me think, oh, this is reminiscent of probably those days. This doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, 
definitely not. Definitely not. I mean, it, it may in, in nooks and crannies, but it's much harder to seek out. There was a, I grew up in Boston and there was a, I don't know if it's even there anymore. I have to look this up, but there was this place called Wally's and it was this hole in the wall jazz room. And from what I'm told back in the day after the greats would play their shows, they would all go to Wally's and jam. And so I had this idea of this place being this smoky jazz club. I walk in and it's like this, you know, dive bar, the TV's on, <laughs> you know, and there's this amazing jazz going on, you know, these, these killer players, but it was not, it was not sort of what I envisioned in my head as the stereotypical classic jazz, jazz club, but, but really just, just this hole in the wall that was known as the cool spot where everyone would go and show up. I mean, it was, it was, it was, and it was, it was a great place. Like I went many times. It just didn't, I just had some made up expectation in my head, which is rather funny considering what I do now. Speaking of you in New York, I just got to tell you after listening to, I've not listened to all your episodes cause you're very prolific, but I've listened to, I don't know, uh, nine or so episodes of your podcast. You need to have someone come on and interview you. You give these bits and pieces about you, where you've lived. I didn't know you taught yoga until until I listened to your podcast. I had a sense of your, you know, that you had a awareness in your practice from you being in the in the yoga room, but I didn't know you ever taught yoga until the podcast. You led ayahuasca ceremonies, like all this. You drop these little bits of what is obviously a very robust and life filled with many an adventure and experience that I think people who, especially those do your podcast, but even people who know you like I do somewhat would really find fascinating. And it'd probably be a two-parter. I've been thinking about that. I just don't know who, who would, who would that be to ask the right questions? I guess I've, I've lived nine lives, Joe. I've had so many different types of Chloe's emerge in my life. <laughs> I, I've got a, just, just a glimpse of that. I really think you should do that because people are like, uh, I'm sure more people are discovering your podcast plus your friends and your acquaintances, but they hear you every time and they get little bits and pieces. Here's this really interesting person interviewing these really interesting people. I just, I hope you do that. I really hope you do that. Thank you. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. It's been on my mind too. Yeah. I think it'd be tremendous. Just to go back on the music thing, I want to share a story sure. with you because I think you'll really appreciate it. Yeah. So one of the most incredible experiences I've had with music and with energy is when I saw Yoko Ono. It's when Ooh, she was really? touring around. Yeah, she was touring around with Plastic Ono Band and there was RZA there. There was Paul Simon's Kid there. There's Lady Gaga. <sighs> random people from every type of genre on Walk Alive. Yeah. And at the very end... Well, first of all, during it, she played chess with RZA, which I thought was genius. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And then at the end, to close it, they all came on stage and they sang Give Peace a Chance. Amazing. And the energy in there was so high and elevated. I felt like I was floating the rest of the night and the next day even too. The power of music, okay. man. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, yeah. I would think that 
both the Riza and Yoko Ono are probably no slouches in chess. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling it was probably quite the quite the the battle. Yeah, they only did it for five or ten minutes. It was more for show, but I'm sure. I bet, yeah. That's it's uh, what what an interesting integration into the show. <laughs> mm -hmm. Beep beep. Hi friends. Have you heard of Brave? Brave is a fast, privacy-preserving browser that feels like Google Chrome, but without the ads and the various kinds of tracking that ads come with. I was using Chrome before for its minimal and uncluttered interface, but Brave has made it so easy to import bookmarks and extensions over that with its extra privacy feature, I'm a newfound fan. The Brave browser is free and available on all platforms and is actively used by more than 20 million people around the world. Speedwise, it feels more responsive and also feels private and secure. Try it out at brave.com. If you enjoy these episodes and you find that it adds value to your life, please consider supporting the podcast through Patreon, www.patreon.com slash higher states. Connect with me on Instagram at higher states with two S's at the end. Why two S's at the end, you ask? Well, Someone out there is keeping the one with one S hostage and has not responded to my DMs. So if you're out there, please let me have it. Last time I checked, it didn't even seem like you use it. Okay, okay, I digress. Now, back to our show. How did you get into music? How did that become your life? I mean, obviously your love for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I just always loved it. I, uh, let's see if I can try to trace this. I'm gonna, this is, I can remember the first couple of songs that I really got into. Uh, my, my mom said that when I was a little kid, American Pie was always the, the lyrics. I love story songs. I've always, loved, I'm, I'm actually, I love instrumental music, but I also love story songs, uh, songs that, that weave you through a, through, through a narrative. And American Pie is one of a classic version of that. And my mom would say that I was a little kid, could barely walk and I'd be, and could barely talk and I'd be running around going, American Pie, American Pie, only probably, Mecca pie, Mecca pie, or something like that. And um, that, and then Band on the Run, Wings, Paul McCartney and Wings. Uh, but I just always loved music. And I played in some bands when I was a teenager. And when I finished high school, I was not in a place where I, re I, I, I just didn't love those, those last two years of high school. I just did not like high school. I'm not unique, uh, but I was not ready for college. And I took, uh, I said I was taking time off. I'm not sure I had any intention of going back to school. But somewhere along the way, in that time where I wasn't, I was just working odd jobs. And I'm so grateful for this. A friend of mine went to Berkeley College of Music, has a five-week summer program. And he did it and he loved it. And he talked it up and talked it up and talked it up. Long story short, I did it the, ne the next summer. I loved it. Uh, it. It was overwhelming. It was intimidating. The level of talent, it would be intimidating to me today to walk into uh, just as a player and, and seeing what was going on around me. Uh, so wonderful, but so inspiring. And so I did that. And very long story short, I applied to Berkeley, got into Berkeley. But because my last couple years of high school you know I wasn't I wasn't a I wasn't uh I wasn't like this 
major rebel or, or any any issues but i just didn't like it i didn't really go a lot i think uh uh, or I would find ways to show up late or get out early. And so because of my dismal high school record, Berkeley accepted me with a condition. I couldn't be a degree student. I could only be a diploma student. So they could sort of keep an eye on me of some sort. And then I could go, I could apply for a degree program if I wanted to. And if they accepted me down the road which I didn't care. I just wanted to be, be in, you know, in this, in this environment. Didn't matter what I was going for. So I go to Berkeley. I, uh, I did not go for performance. I, I play bass and I, and I took many, many bass playing classes, but I wasn't, every class I took wasn't a performance class. I didn't have a major. Oh, this is a long, very long winded answer. I'm sorry. I'm going straight. No, no, no. Okay, okay, uh, I was sort of make your own major. I didn't, I didn't, have a decision on a major, what it would be. About two and a half years in, I, I, I was in a band, I was in a band and the drummer and I were in Berkeley College of Music at that time, only offered two music business classes. Legal aspects of the music business with a, with a, a wonderful teacher named Jay Fialkov and another great music business class uh, that I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the title. Uh, but the teacher was Mitch Benoff, who was wonderful. The drummer in the band I was in, we both went to Berkeley. We both went to legal aspects of the music business with Jay Fialkov. And it was like 4 to 6 p.m. It was a great two-hour class. He's a very engaging teacher, very informative. And we loved it. We absolutely loved it. We ate, up, ate it up. There's so much to learn about what you don't know as a musician and that there are... There are a lot of paths to to getting tripped up or to losing your rights or to diminishing your rights, et cetera. That's already built into the system. So if you don't know about them, you you step right into that trap. If you know about them, you can try to find ways to step around it. Anyway, we would we would take the class and then we'd have to walk about 25 minutes to the train station where we'd be talking about the class. And then we get on the train and for 45 minutes, we would take the train out to where we rehearsed and we'd be talking about the class the whole time. So it was really a three and a half hour class of, of, about the content of the class. We loved it. Semester ends, there are no more music business classes to take. And all of a sudden Berkeley announces that they are going to, uh, they're announcing a new major, which is a big deal. They don't do that that often. And they don't have that many majors. It didn't at that time. And they were offering a new music business major. And they brought in a new chair. His name was Don Gorder. He just retired this year. You had to apply. And so I loved music business. I didn't, I didn't really, I wasn't sure how I wanted to position myself in the school, what my major would be. So I said, I love this. I'm going to apply for it. And I applied for music business major. And while I was there, I was like, you know, there was that thing about the degree and the diploma. Maybe I'll just apply for that too, because that was an application process. So I applied for both, got, got accepted for both. We were, I joked that we were the guinea pigs. We were the first, the, the, the first students of what, what is now one of the biggest majors in the school, but there were 35 of us. We all went out to dinner when we graduated, teachers and students, because everybody's like, we made it. My GPA shot up. Like I just, I found, I found this, this path 
and this thing that I had great interest in. I still got to take all these playing classes. However, I now had all these core focus classes. And then to answer your original question, why I, and I still work in the music business. I'll, that's a whole other thing. I've been working at record labels for 25 years. That was that, that really set me in a direction that I'm so grateful for. And that school was so important to me, still is. But while I was at Berkeley, I got, you know, I grew up, every, I grew up, everything was hard rock. Like that was the only thing I really knew, which is great. And I still love hard rock, but I got introduced to so much, so much amazing music in that experience and, and different ways to listen to music and different ways to approach music. I was surprised I, I got, I look back and I'm surprised I got into the school because my channel was fairly myopic, but they didn't know that. I guess that doesn't show up on your tests to get in and your inquiries and your applications. Uh, so anyway, got in, changed my life tremendously for the better. I'm so grateful and I've been, sort of playing in and out of bands for all that time. And I've, I've worked in the music business for 25 years and I do now, I work at a record label. And that same drummer, by the way, took his father to an Allman Brothers show in 1992. And he came back to the rehearsal. He's like, you guys have got to see this band. You have to see this band. My next birthday, he bought me a ticket to see the Allman Brothers. And I knew Allman Brothers songs from, from the radio, but when I saw what was going on, the interplay, the different influences, the level of talent and the improvisational skills, two, two drummers, a percussionist, two guitarists, bass, keys, all masters at their instruments and masters of improvising together, I was hooked. That was 75 Allman Brothers shows ago. You know, they're no longer tour, but I, I, I became obsessed. So that also shifted me and opened me into that channel that I just did not know existed at that level. Brought me great, great joy. Still does. It's a long-winded answer to how'd you get into music? <laughs> and what label are you at now? And are you a music supervisor? I'm not a music supervisor. I work, we, we work with a lot of music supervisors. I work... I'm the VP of marketing for the record label that puts out all of the soundtracks to all the Warner Pictures films, now HBO Max content, uh, Warner Brothers television shows, Warner Brothers produced television shows, HBO. We A lot of scores, Cartoon Network, Adult Swim. The label's called Water Tower Music. If you go on the Warner Brothers lot, there's a very iconic water tower. If you ever watch any Warner Brothers movie, it starts off with this sweeping shot of the Warner Brothers lot and you see the, the water tower. And our offices, when we first got there, were right underneath the water tower, so water tower music. So we put out a lot of scores and we put out a lot of soundtracks. Uh, I would say about 95% of the releases that I just mentioned, TV, HBO, uh, animation, theatrical, we release those, uh, those soundtracks and those scores. And we, we work so we work with music supervisors. We work very closely with composers and we work very closely with the internal departments that work with the music supervisors, if that makes sense. Got it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And it's great. It's very different. I, I was in the artist business for years. I was at record labels that worked artists and Universal and DreamWorks and Interscope and all, all those places. But this I've now, 
I've now been at this label, I just hit 15 years. I've never had a job for more than three years and I've been at this label for 15 years. Amazing. It's a really nice place to be and I work with amazingly inspired people. My bosses are incredible. I just love the way they see the world and they see things and they and they approach it and my coworkers are really intelligent. So it keeps me on my toes and it keeps me inspired. And as you know, having worked in the music business, the music business has changed dramatically multiple times while I've worked in it. I left multiple Joe. Times. I know. I learned that from also from the podcast, but you still yeah. know it's changed. Yeah. That's a whole, you haven't really revealed that. Well, you real, revealed a little bit and perhaps it's, it's not for public consumption, but sounded uh, like, sounded like you had a music business experience perhaps. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you and then I'm going to cut it out, but sure, yeah. And it's principle too. It's principle. So how did you find yoga? When did that come into the picture? Yoga came into the picture, sort of came into the picture in the, in the very late nineties. I don't know. I don't know why it wasn't like I had an injury. You have know, listened to many of your podcasts and your folks and, and you hear these stories of people got into yoga because of an injury, because of this, because of that. I was just, as I can recall, I can't, there are a lot of cobwebs in there and I reach into the cobwebs to try to find the reason and try to sort the cobwebs. And I can't, other than my being curious, I cannot recall why else I got into yoga, but it wasn't a, I just took a class. It was, I was curious. I lived in Boston, Somerville, technically outside of Boston at that time. I was curious. And I remember I, I'm looking at a, my bookcase here and I could see the, the yoga book that I bought, not knowing anything about the authors or anything. I just found it looked like a good introduction to yoga book. And I bought it. I remember going through a few of the poses in my bedroom and they were mostly balancing poses like tree pose or versions of tree to work on your balance. I thought it was interesting and I didn't even read through the whole book. I remember scanning it. This was in the day, this was before Google, right? There were internet searches, but they weren't anywhere near as robust as they are now. So I remember searching for yoga studios in my area. I don't know if it was before Google, but it was before Google's level of integration in our society as it is now. And I remember searching for yoga studios around me. And there was one down the street. I was like, oh, there's a yoga studio down the street. And so I drove by it and it was a house. And I know now it was probably someone's private yoga business. But then I just searched yoga studios and that's what came up. And I, I was a little intimidated by yoga. I don't know why, just something new, something different. And I couldn't balance that well, you know, at the time I thought that was, that was, I had to be able to balance to get into a yoga class. And I remember I drove by that house and looked at that house from every angle. There were no signs outside. So I was still not sure it was even a yoga studio, but I would drive by it and look at it. I'd drive the other way at night and look at it. But I never went in. I never went in. Long story short, fast forward a little bit, I get a job with DreamWorks Records and get move, and move out to California. This is uh, April 1st will be 20 years ago. I get here just working all the time. I'm showing up early, leaving late. I love my job. I just want to prove myself, whatever it is. I'm, I'm just completely immersed in it. I had a roommate who's uh, my dear, dear best friend now still. He and I, we lived in Hollywood, and he and I somehow 
figured out, uh, we, neither of us were doing much in the way of exercise at all. And we somehow figured out that when we were kids, we both played racquetball. Don't ask me how that came up. We found out that the Hollywood YMCA had racquetball courts. So we decided we were both going to join and we were going to play racquetball uh, to get a little exercise and to, you know, have some fun. And we did that and it was great. We had a great time throwing ourselves into walls and missing the ball and hitting the ball and all, all that goes along with it. But the Hollywood Y, I didn't know this until I signed up, has a very, my dog in the background, I apologize. What kind of dog do you have? Two dogs. Uh, one is a, one is a Beagle, German Shepherd and Super Mutt mix, if you will. And he's 13, his name's Lucky and he's got a very sweet, calm energy. And then there's a three-year-old, both rescues, three-year-old half Doberman, half boxer named Jazz. And that's who you hear is Jazz. Jazz, uh, Jazz has a lot of energy, has been to the dog park today, has been walked. Oh my uh, God. <laughs> has been walked a mile, maybe, maybe two. Uh, if there was another dog outside the apartment door, Jazz gets on guard. Even though she's the kindest, sweetest soul, she she's got a she's got a bark that is uh, certainly louder than her bite, which there's no real bite, but you hear her a mile away. She's she done that makes... all before one p.m. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, I had I, I walked her between seven and eight. I walked the two dogs, and then when I was teaching my class at ten o'clock this morning, my Saturday class, uh, my girlfriend took them to the dog park for a good hour right before I got on with you to try to keep her quiet. I took her around the block and now it sounds like she's going around the block again or maybe two blocks. <laughs> and there'll be several more of those today. She needs, a, she needs the Doberman boxer. Like she really needs to get the energy out. Yeah. I feel you. I have a terrier poodle He's somewhere around mm -hmm. here and that terrier in him too, he needs to run and get it out of his system. So I get yes. it. Oh, you were saying. Hollywood Y. So we're playing racquetball. They have, they have a, great yoga schedule. They have all these great classes at the Hollywood Y. And so I would look at the schedule, be like, oh, there's yoga. Huh. Maybe I'll do that at some point. At this point, I, my interest, in, I was just doing other things in life. And then one day on the table, I saw that there was a keyword was introduction. Introduction to Kundalini Yoga Workshop. I didn't know what Kundalini Yoga was, but introduction and yoga, that I was like, oh yeah. I want to get introduced to yoga and I'm already here. But when I signed up, there were five, six pages of people who had signed up. It was a free workshop. If people don't have to pay, they don't have to show up. They can just, it's just putting their name on a piece of paper. So on the day of the workshop, it's a beautiful Southern California day. It's a beach day. It's a drive down sunset day. It's a go have brunch with your friends day, whatever. It's that it's the be outside day. But so many people signed up that they had four teachers. When I got there, there were a total of six of us who took the class out of something like 80 who signed up. <laughs> so they had all like a private, all a semi-private yoga class. I don't know if you've taken much Kundalini, but it can really lift your energy, really lift your energy between a lot of breath work. There's definitely movement, breath work, meditation, some chanting. I walked out of that class 
and I will never forget it. I was walking across the street, look left, look right. There's no one around me. I'm walking to my car and I burst out uncontrollably laughing and I cannot stop. And I'm looking around, I'm in, almost embarrassed. I'm, I'm hysterically laughing. I don't know what that was, but I'm gonna do that again. That was pretty cool. And I think that was on a Saturday. On Sunday, they had a introduction or, or a, a beginners or level one, I forget what it's called, but something I felt I comfortable going to as a, as a newbie, a Hatha yoga class. I don't know the difference, Hatha Kundalini, Hatha is how it's spelled for those, you know, but Hatha, Hatha Yoga. And so I go to that and that's a more sun salutations, warrior twos, that, that sort of thing. You know, you know, what we think of as a physical yoga class with some breath work and, and, and some, some good mental lessons perhaps. And I came out of that class and I felt like I was glowing. I went home and I put the key in the door and I opened the door and I felt like I just felt like I was glowing from the inside out. My roommate, my best friend who was on the couch with his girlfriend at the time. And when he tells this story, he says it tells it the same way I'm I'm telling it now. He looked up. He, they both sat up and looked at me and he says that I was literally glowing. Like uh, There was this energy around me that he had never seen. And to the point where they both sat up and were like, and I felt this is another long story by the way and i felt amazing and so i started going and i started going once or twice a week sometimes kundalini sometimes hatha yoga maybe i tried a couple other different teachers along the way and although i was very busy i remember saying i'm going to do this three times a week i'm going to commit to doing yoga three times a week and see what happens well, I don't even see what happens. I just want to do it because I like it. I committed to yoga, committed to yoga three times a week, minimum. And I stayed with that. And everything in my life got better. Couldn't tell you why. Couldn't tell you how. I didn't intentionally change my diet. I didn't intentionally do anything but show up at those classes. I immediately, uh, I almost hesitate to bring this up because it's not, a, uh, it's not about this, but I immediately lost 20 pounds. And that was really because, maybe it's because I was doing yoga, but it was because I was, I think I was just, I was shifting some habits when I was eating, how I was eating, what I was doing in downtime where I wasn't exercising. I definitely don't want to make this about about losing weight or, or anything like that because everybody's got a different experience with that. But that just happened without my making, having any intention to lose weight. That just sort of happened. My sleep got deeper. I still got three, 400 emails a day at work, but the way I processed stress changed at one or two in the afternoon, I no longer crashed. Even though I was very busy and I injected more things into my life with yoga, I had more time in my day. I would have these stress dreams where I would, the phone would, would, the phone would ring in the middle of the night and I would pick it up and I would start talking 
I remember answering it with my company, <laughs> answering it up to Joe from, and I would talk for a while. And then all of a sudden the person wouldn't be talking anymore. And I was talking about work and I would say, hello, hello. And I wake myself up and I realized I just woken myself up and I was not on the phone. It was just a stress dream. Like I was always working, even though I loved my job, it, it had permeated its way into my life in a way that was, uh, there was some excessiveness to it, I guess. And those stopped. Everything got better. I kept going. I ended up doing a, a Kundalini yoga teacher training, a 200 hour teacher training in 2006. When I finished that, I realized now I had taken many Hatha classes, many Kundalini classes. I love Kundalini. I, lo I love the, I, I love many of the Kundalini practices, but I knew that there was a lot about the physicality of yoga that I, not just the physicality, there was, there was a lot I, I was not taught. And I realized that Kundalini taught yoga from its own perspective and its own way. And there was more I needed to learn or more I wanted to learn about Hatha yoga. So I took, in 2007, I took another 200 hour training in the room that you and I practiced in many times at Yoga Works in Larchmont, formerly known as Center for Yoga. I finished that training and I gained a whole other perspective and more knowledge, but I did not start teaching. And that was my own competence thing. Even though I had all this information, I just, I just didn't start teaching. A few months later, I get thrown off a horse and I tear my groin and I mess up my lower back to a point where I can barely walk for about a month. I can walk, but it's not pretty and it's challenging. I can't sit and meditate. I can't do anything. So I'm, and I'm now I'm not practicing yoga at all. And in my head, beating myself up about not teaching. And now when will I ever teach? I'm not sure I set out to teach, but at that point I thought about it and didn't do it. When I started to feel better, I would start, I would just started by walking. And then I would walk and I would run a little bit, like a quarter of a block. I, I was in bad shape. When I started to walk and run a little bit more as I started to improve, I started to go to yoga classes again. And I couldn't do a lot, but I knew instinctively that the movements I was doing were going to help me. I just, I knew I couldn't let my body just contract. I needed to do some movements. And so I would go to yoga classes and I would run and I started to feel better. And I still had many remnants of, of the, of the injury. It was my second time on a horse and I got tossed off and I likely won't do that again because I want to teach yoga. Uh, and practice yoga. Later that summer, I'm, I'm healing. I'm definitely feeling a lot better. There's some remnants. And I've been thinking about the 300 hour program, which is funny because I'm now a mentor in the 300 hour program at Yoga Works and I'm very, very grateful for that. It's not funny, ironic. I was in Amsterdam and I was thinking about this 300 and it was starting in a week and a half or a week or something. 
I was in Amsterdam and I remember being in a coffee shop in Amsterdam. I think then I probably had a Blackberry. The mentorship, the, the 300-hour at Yoga Works is the way it is structured is that there are all these intense workshops, weekend workshops, six, six hours a day for over six months, five or six months, many of them. There's also these Wednesday night meetings where there's meditation and, and philosophy and breath work. And then there's another component where, say there's 30 people in the training. Five or six of those people work with a mentor. So the, the, the larger group is broken up and people choose a mentor and they work with that mentor for the five or six months. Have to take their class once a week, have to observe or assist their class once a week, and have to have side meetings with the mentor group. I emailed the teacher I wanted to be my mentor or I hoped to be my mentor. You didn't just get assigned a mentor. You you would you would each each mentor had a some some of them had different specialties. It might be someone who is an Iyengar teacher or an Ashtanga teacher or a therapeutics teacher or someone who specialized in teaching beginners or level two three flow whatever whatever somebody everyone had a different sort of specialty. I really wanted this teacher Jean Heileman, and I emailed her and. I said, if I sign up for this, can you be my mentor? And she emailed me back and said that she was full. Like they have a cap. You can only have a certain amount of mentees as a mentor. She was full. And why don't you try so-and-so? And I said, you know, I really, I really wanted you. And I think I might just wait. And I had also emailed yoga works directly saying, I would like to apply for this. So, I was a little bummed, but I'm like, okay, it wasn't, wasn't meant to be. Stroll around Amsterdam with my, with my dear friend, Al. The next day, most likely at the same coffee shop, I get an email from Jean. And she said, somebody just, just shifted out and I have a spot. Do you want it? And I said, yes. And I signed up on the spot. And that was that might have been a Tuesday or a Wednesday, and I was supposed to come back on Saturday, but Saturday was when the, if I recall this correctly, again, lots of cobwebs and coffee shop. Saturday, I cut my trip short by a day, flew back, started the training the next day, and it was such a beautiful six months. I learned so much. Uh, Jean Heilman is still, I hold her in the highest regard. If it wasn't for her, I wouldn't be teaching. And I didn't come out of the 300 hour, I didn't come out of those six months, guns ablaze and I'm going to teach. But two weeks after we finished, she said, I'm not going to be here next Wednesday. You're going to sub for me. And I was petrified, petrified. I was, I was subtly avoiding any, you know, if a teacher was late and they needed someone to start the class, I would suddenly be in the changing room. So no one could find me to ask me to start the class. Like I was really, I was really avoiding it for whatever reason. And uh, Jean drew a teacher out of me or a student out of me and who tries to teach. And 
that was the very beginning of 2009. And I have been teaching ever since. I am now a mentor in that same 300-hour program and try to have some reasonable facsimile of the impact that Gene had on me and that program had on me with students who have signed up with me. I love the one-on-one -on -one experience with the smaller groups where we can really talk about teaching cues and how to sequence a class, but you can also really get into the nuances of teaching and, and what, what, that, what that means to me. And I get to, I get to really try to voice that, especially in a Zoom world where if we were teaching in studio, a lot of what I would be talking about is what you're observing in the class and what you do when you observe it and how, how you might choose to give adjustments and be very clean in your energy and how to approach your students and how to, how to put the student first. Uh, always care about the student's experience. I was lucky if you just heard. I hear. Outside. You want to bring them in? I, I will in a little bit. I will in a little bit. Because uh, once that door opens, if jazz is going, it, it, will, it might take 20 minutes to, to calm her down. So because we are now on Zoom, because we're now online, because we're now teaching online, I had to completely revise what we're not giving physical adjustments. We're not observing the entire room. We're, the, the virtual room is a very different experience to the point where if I have 60 people in the class, only 25 may have their cameras on even. And some of them, you can only see their feet or you can only see their, their head or because of their, their space considerations. So now I get to dive a little deeper into clarifying other, what I consider other very important aspects of teaching and speak to that. And I love that. I love the possibilities there. How long after that you're practicing consistently that you felt a shift inside your body? It felt almost immediate. Mm -hmm. It probably was a few months. I don't, it felt almost immediate. Uh, it just really hit me. It hit me in so many ways, uh, not just physically. It, the, the, you know, Kundalini is a lot of meditation, a lot of chanting, a lot of almost getting into a hypnotic state. There is definitely movement. There's movement. There's a lot of breath work. There's a lot of meditation. And all of those things combined, like I felt it, body, mind, and spirit. I didn't solely feel it body, which would have been great, would have been a way in for me. But I, I just felt like it pushed all of these buttons all of these wonderful buttons that I didn't, I don't think I even realized how those buttons could be pushed or turned on, maybe a better way of saying it. What uh, I notice about yogis who are deeply on the path and it has such a transformative effect on them immediately, it just makes me think, oh, we were probably yogis in a past life. And now this is why everything is clicking into place because we found an aspect of ourselves that we once were. It's the only thing that makes sense. <laughs> I love that. So it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful take on it. I like that a lot. That would be you too. Yes, definitely. Without yoga, for me as well, immediately after the first time, when I had my first out-of-body experience, is when that's, that's what opened the door for me, but that's what really piqued my curiosity of what is this? And the immediate healing 
too, physically, mentally, emotionally, energetically, the, the depth that it was able to access. It's so much beyond this physical experience. Wholeheartedly. It's funny, you know, we as teachers certainly can't know what the student's experience is. But sometimes you just have some sort of observation of someone or a connection with someone that is so subtle, but it's an acknowledgement. The first time that we were in class together, or you were in my class, however you want to say it, I remember, I just re remember having an observation of, ah, you've not been in my class before, but you are a, you, you, I felt the energy of a, of a practitioner who was, who held the practice in very high regard. I remember, I remember that. I just remember that. And it was like you and I had known each other for a while, at least in a yoga room. You know, it almost felt like you and I had practice in the same yoga room together, you know, not maybe not together, but in the same yoga room. And as if you and I always saw each other in the studio as very regular practitioners, that's how I felt about you when you first were in my class. I remember it vividly. I remember you coming up after class even. Like I remember vividly because I, I saw how I feel about the practice or at least this is the story I have in my head, right? How I feel about the practice, I felt like I saw that same passion or awareness or love of the practice in you. That's so funny you say that. I felt that about you too, Joe, immediately. And the reason why I even strolled into your class is because a friend of mine had recommended you. I was complaining about how teachers in LA are so cheesy and I don't want to... <laughs> I don't want to listen to this cheesy music while doing such a sacred, deep, reverent practice. And I'd rather do it at home. So I've been practicing at home by myself probably a few years. I was doing Ashtanga for a while and then I stopped. So I was just doing my own thing. And my friend Daniel said, hey, you know, t check out this guy, Joe. I think you're really going to like him. And what, what made me have so much respect for you is the level of silence that you incorporate into your room as well as speaking but you give the space for students to have their own experience and i think that's so important because a lot of teachers they make it all about them and yes you are teaching something but also the student is coming here to have their own experience inside their body and i always felt like a teacher is just another fancy word for a student who's guiding the students along their way because maybe they might know a little bit more than them. They've been on the path a little bit more than them. And with you, I was like, oh man, he's a real yogi. He's a real devotee. Maybe we were in India together at one point in a previous life practicing by the Ganga River. But I, <laughs> I felt the energy of someone who is completely devoted to this oh, practice. That's nice to hear. That's nice feedback. Thank you. I'm glad that was your sensation or your experience. That 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 uh, that's nice to hear. That's nice to hear. Yeah, you're an amazing teacher. You're one of my favorites. Top ten kind. for sure. Maybe even top five. And <laughs> <laughs> I always recommend. 
I always recommend people to you. Oh, thanks. That's, I mean, you nice know, you say. I brought I, in so many people. <laughs> yes, 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 you did. Yes, you did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yoga for me is is the Bible. It's a real direct experience of God during the practice. Observing you practice, I feel that that you're having an experience on some level of great depth like that. And what's great about it is you're having that experience and like when you walk in the room, it's the Yankees cap and the hoodie <laughs> and, and the bandana and the bandana, right? I always remember these other aspects of, of someone in the practice. And, and then you come in and you are just like, you're right in. You are right in. It's, it's, uh, it's nice. You know, some aspects of yoga, I'm not, I'm, this is not a, a complaint. This is not a judgment. But some aspects of the yoga practice, uh, I have the observation that they have shifted a little bit. In the, in, in the, just the, I don't mean the yoga practice, I mean the yoga environment. They've shifted a little bit. This is not holier than thou or anything, but I just remember walking, you would walk, one would walk into a yoga room and people would be sort of quiet. People would, there were several people who were lying on their back and you still have that. There would be several people who were meditating prior to class. And I don't know what, why I even brought this up. I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but there was a reverence to it. I think you said the experience of God. There was a reverence to, to the practice that that experience, uh, I, I guess it will always depend on where one is doing this because each studio has their own, their own uh, culture and environment and, character i guess i saw that in how you practice and how you chose to walk in the room and how you chose to to be in the space and it reminded me of that even if that wasn't always what was the environment you had just walked into you know sometimes like in, in classes i it was just about making making space and navigating the room so it was a lot of it's a lot of frenetic energy before everything could settle and you just seem to be settled within that frenetic energy around. You seem to be very settled and grounded and centered amongst the setting up of the room. You know, in LA with traffic, you get a you get a somewhat full class, and then you have people coming in for ten minutes, you know, and because of traffic and parking and all that. And so trying to both hold the space for the folks in the room, but also hold the space for the folks who are going to be coming in late because they're probably stressed. They are probably a little frazzled coming into class late. People are in some meditation or breath work and they come in, they have to tiptoe, but they also have to get their props and they have to do this and they have to do that. And it, it's just a, there's a lot of different things happening. You could just shut the door, you know, and, and, and tell people to wait outside, but People don't always do that and for whatever reason or are not conscious of that they should do that. And so it's disheveled for a while is, is what I'm getting at those first several minutes. And one can be in the dishevelment and that would be okay and that would be fine. Or one could 
almost utilize that as a tool to drop in and center. That's what I got from you. Without one word said, that's just what I got from you. It was I mean, nice. That is the practice of yoga, isn't it? That is, well, I mean, <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. But we are all in a different place on that path. And every day we might be in a different place on that path than we were from the day before. So you know, try to hold the space for people who are on the path, wherever they are on the path. If they're showing up, they're on the path. Yeah. And you know, just try to be supportive in that way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, your classes are always packed too, especially that Sunday morning one. At least yeah. 150, no, on that day? No, no, it wouldn't, wouldn't be that much. Uh, so Sunday mornings were packed for a variety of reasons. It was a really good time slot. The farmer's market was across the street. Larchmont was the oldest studio in LA, was a studio, I believe since 1969, not always yoga works, but a yoga studio for that continual time. So there you have a lot of people who, that was a destination for yoga. Uh, and then, you know, I had that great luxury of having those wonderful percussionists, the drummers play. So or 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 uh, that was Butch and Rich and uh, and our friend Lynn and, and and a few other great great percussionists, couple couple different mics and uh, and uh, uh, and our friend MB Gordy, all these amazing drummers. And when those folks played, my class, which I, I guess it was in the '60s or '70s, sometimes, but you'd have. 20, 25, 30 more people would come for the percussionists because those guys were so, I mean, what they, what they add, that, that level of, of rhythm that they added and how they chose to, they weren't just jamming in the corner. They were playing off the energy of the room and they would, they would feed that energy and they would sort of breathe with that energy almost and take it into, to, to great rhythms and then bring it back down. And, and so they gave people a great experience on top of the yoga. All that said, I think the most we had in that room, uh, I think it was when, when not with the drummers, but also my, my good friend, Timothy Jenkins, was a, would DJ in class sometimes. And he just had this, he just had this, has this warmth of energy and he's, he's you just, you're just attracted to, you wanna be around him. And he's always very inviting. His great smile and 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 a and a soul and always the most soulful music choices. And I think on New Year's Eve day a few years back, we had 111 people. Uh, that was I that was that was I think the most we could get in there with people on the stage and all that there. Yeah, and that was fun because although that's not for everybody, the really close. For those who who uh, can be in that environment, and and you get to, it was a whole different experience because you have all this all this energy from all these folks practicing. Amazing to think about now, that many people in a, in a yoga room. Uh, but it would lift all of us. Everyone's energy would lift everyone else, and. That was an experience unto itself, and would one would one classify it as a? Uh, is that the practice? You know, having a DJ or having drummers, I don't know. 
you know, probably not. I'm sure there's folks who, who that might not be their thing or that might not be their interpretation of yoga. And that's okay. But that's what the experience was there. And it would lift me very high. And it felt like it, it was a, a great community lift also. And I, I'm so grateful for those times. So I was always grateful. I never took those for granted, but I am, uh, I am especially grateful now to have had those experiences. I hope we can have them again somewhere. Me too. I was just about to say that. When do you think you'll start teaching in person again after the vaccine? Well, I mean, except for a handful of studios, all the studios are closed. They're physical yeah. locations, like permanently. I could go. I go through a list, oh. including including Larchmont. Oh really? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 So, yeah, that's it's, oh, it's no. decimated the. Oh yeah, it's decimated the community. In fact, I'm going to turn you on to another podcast that a former teacher at Larchmont has been putting together about Larchmont and the history of that studio. And it is, you will learn so much about that, about that room, about that studio. And it's really, really interesting. So I'll, I'll turn you on to that, that, uh, after, uh, after this, we'll, we'll sidebar on that. But, um, yeah, so I don't know where I will teach and that will be a whole, you know, I'm sure I will have a hand in teaching online and I will have a hand in, teaching in person and a physical space. I mean, maybe we'll do some outdoor stuff and get the drummers and that sort of thing, but a physical space that's going to take time for, you know, I can see a, I can see a, an environment where some studios may say no physical adjustments. I can certainly see where many students would wa not want to have physical adjustments right away or at all teachers not wanting to give them. Not to say that that's a be all end all, but that's just, that's an experience that will likely shift. Really? Sure. I'm thinking some studios may feel if there's not clarity on some sort of, I'm guessing, I'm speculating, but liability. Let's say a, a teacher gets COVID or a student gets COVID and they, they think it was the teacher. I mean, who knows? Who knows? Um, I just, I, I don't know that. I don't know that much about that, but I'm sure that's a consideration for a business owner. Uh, and then I think that there, there are people who are going to be easing back into the world of being in person and it's going to be tentative for people for a while. Again, I'm speculating. Maybe everyone's going to come running back, but I think some folks might be like, okay, just, I want my space around me and Thank you, but no adjustments. And uh, and so I don't know how I'll be teaching. I don't know where I'll be teaching, but I have every intention of teaching. I've, this is one of the great gifts I've been given is to be able to, to do this. Uh, and what's interesting is teaching online has been, at first I thought, oh, our community is going away. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience. It's been amazing. People in different countries, people all over all over the United States, people who used to practice with me in LA, who have moved away, I now see two, three, four times a week. 
in my classes in Nashville, New York. And I've met people who I now see in every, every class or many classes in upstate New York or New Orleans or Chicago, or Boston. So it has been this wonderful opportunity to expand the community. It just happens to be in this room instead of that room. And yes, it's a different experience, but still get to get to do this and get to be a part of it. And, and so I'm great. I'm super grateful. I'm super grateful. It could have just stopped. You know, if this was 10 years ago, it would have just stopped. Yeah. Or, been on, or put on pause, put on pause. Wait a second. So the physical location of yoga works is now gone. All of them. Cause they had, them, they had, they had them in, Boston area, Atlanta yeah. area, uh, Houston or, and or Dallas, DC, Baltimore, San Francisco, upstate, upstate California, upstate, upstate California, Northern California. Uh, I'm probably missing a few, but they had several locations. So it, I guess it'd be, I, again, I'm speculating. I don't own a studio, but I'm, I'm sure the economics of keeping that many leases going. For a year. Yeah. Yeah, is uh, is not sustainable. Yeah. So your classes now, is it directly through you or is it through the Yoga Works digital membership? I, I teach uh, through Yoga Works. Through Yoga Got Works. it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they've, they've uh, you know, a, a lot of teachers have, uh, have uh, uh, two classes on their own. Some do classes on their own and with a studio. Just kept going with Yoga Works. I've done a couple one-offs on my own. Who knows? Maybe I'll, I'll do more. But... I got a great deal from that place. And so, you know, they, I'm sure for a while it was touch or go whether they would continue. And so I enjoy being part of that community. And so I teach, you know, people have a member, I guess if they have a membership with Yoga Works, I'm one of, uh, I have four classes a week and there are many other classes that, that people can take online. Uh, everything from pranayama, uh, which I take religiously on Wednesday mornings at 7.30 in the morning with Lisa Walford, uh, to uh, yoga nidra classes and to flow classes and beginner classes and everything in between. So it's a, it's a nice offering and people can take those classes internationally. And so I'm not sure where I would even add other classes uh, if I were to do my own classes. I also have a day job. I'm also in teacher training. You know, I, I uh, this is this is where we're at right now. I have my four classes a week, and I'm grateful for that. It's not the, I think the eight I taught weekly before COVID, but it's just fine. It's just fine. And are they all live or is it on demand? They have a library of on-demand classes, oh. but then they have many, many, I mean, throughout the day, starting our time at 3.30 in the morning because they have East Coast teachers. Our time, 3.30 in the morning, all the way through, I think, probably 9 p.m. They have classes all day long, live classes. So you sign in, you go in, you go through the, the, the platform and it takes you to a, a Zoom backend. And, uh, and so that's, that's what that looks like. Oh, got it. I yeah. didn't know. So, yeah. So with your, your membership, which is, I, I think, reduced in price since it was in person, 
people have can take both can access both the on-demand classes and the live streaming classes gotcha so what days and times do you teach i teach uh saturday and sunday at 10 a.m pacific and tuesday and thursday night at 6 30 p.m pacific tuesday oh. and thursday is a 60 minute class saturday and sunday is a 75 minute class and it's right here i'm right here yeah <laughs> yeah and it's great it's it's yeah i'm, I'm so grateful for it and i see a lot of larchmont folks i see a lot of a lot of friends it's it's great got it so it's not separated by studio anymore it's just one hub it's one online hub and everywhere yeah. around the world where they have yoga works teachers there's a master list yes yeah and you know it took them a while to get there because they had all these studios and so like many other businesses they had to they had to contract and so yoga works as a whole has less teachers than they did originally because there'd be somebody in houston boston dc baltimore san francisco and la all teaching i'm making this up a level two class at the same time so now you it doesn't make sense to have seven classes at once at the same time they, they had to shift their schedule like one studio would do but they're accommodating for teachers around the country and so uh so they have less teachers than they did originally uh, which is unfortunate, but I guess it's the reality when, when you have a situation like this. Yeah, I mean, we've all tried to find ways to adjust to the climate and just making it work. I really do hope it comes back, though. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that it will. I, I am, too. I just think it's, it's going to take a little while because some, there are going to be some former studios are going to open maybe in different locations. Maybe if, if their previous locations are still open and they have an option to go back in, maybe they'll do that. And then you're going to have some people are going to keep their studios closed and you're going to have people, new people coming in and opening studios. And some of those studios might take on a different look. Like here's the physical class and it's also live streamed. So there's multiple cameras around the room following the teacher around when they move. I, who knows? But I think there will be this this model this teaching online model isn't going away there'll always be this more of this now than there was before and now you'll have some hybrid models and i think a lot of teachers are going to have a hybrid teaching experience and mm -hmm. some studios may may model themselves for a hybrid experience also mm -hmm. as a provider man the larchmont location cannot go away that it that was an institution that's where patabi joyce used to come wasn't it 1969 1969 yeah i think he he, I, he did come there yes as did many many other krishna das used to give concerts there oh really i remember, I remember like before he was i don't know if he was i, I want to say before he was touring like uh, venues but i remember you'd have you'd have people down the stairs so you think about this. I had a, a hundred, about 110 people in my class. That's with mats down. Now, what if you have people just sitting cross-legged uh... together? You probably had three, 400 people in that room all chanting with Krishna Das. And I remember the line going down the steps, out Larchmont, around the block. And then you'd come into that foyer and there would just be, you know, everyone took their shoes off. 
there'd be hundreds and hundreds of shoes in that foyer <laughs> everywhere you know, on the steps and you know hanging off of, it was, it was, yeah pretty funny oh my god wow yeah. what a time yeah. uh dharma mitra i practiced with there back in the day uh i think sting practiced there uh there was some like radio promotion and somebody could like you could practice yoga with sting <laughs> years years ago um yeah a lot a lot of folks came came through there it, you know Back in the day, when master teachers would come in for workshops, they it wasn't like they had a choice of ten places. They would you know, it was only a handful of spaces, and that was Center for Yoga was one of the I say Center for Yoga and Yoga Works Largemont interchangeably because before it was Yoga Works Largemont, it was Center for Yoga. A lot of people still call it that. That Center for Yoga was a was a a hub and a pinnacle of, of yoga teaching in Los Angeles. What is in that upper balcony space with the curtains in the main room? I've always been so curious. I, I know a lot of people are curious. It's a private room. It's a, it's, it's oh. where they would give yoga privates, but it, it almost looks like it could be like a projector space for a, for a film, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a room. That's uh, probably, I don't know, 10 by 12 room. It just has those windows and it overlooks that. that big. Before it was, and I, I learned this from that podcast I told you about, about the history of Larchman. Before it was Center for Yoga, it was a Fred Astaire dance studio. Oh. So maybe, there, maybe I, but I don't know if it was built for that. So I don't know why that room is the way it is overlooking that room. I think back in the day, it might have been a Masonic Lodge. Maybe speeches were given from there. Maybe, who knows, uh, you know, whatever is done, you know, with groups of people from that place. It seems like it was a, a, a podium of some sort, but I, I don't know for sure. Yeah. And then was it only that one level originally? No. Oh. Uh, no, no. Well, I don't know about originally. I, I, I can't speak to originally. But that level where the big room was and the bathrooms and the, and the smaller room there, there was also an upstairs that had an office. Oh, the upstairs had an office, another yoga room, and you could enter the, that overlook room, that, that room that overlooked the big room. And then there was a further, like you go up, I think, up to the roof from there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a okay. fascinating building. It's a really, it's a, you know. That was part of its character and part of its charm was that it was, it wasn't this polished, you know, brand new, everything, you know, it had its, it had its quirks and it's had, it had its creaks and it had, it had its, it just had its character, it just had its character. It was a big part of it. Mm -hmm. So as a teacher for you and with your day job, when do you find time to practice and what does your practice look like? It varies. What's interesting about COVID times is that when I'm teaching, you were in my class, so in, a, in the yoga room, I might do some of it and demo some of it, but I walk around a lot so people can see if you're in Warrior 2 and you're looking this way, I'm over there so you can see me. You're in Warrior Two. This way, I've walked around the room so you could see me. I can demo, but I wasn't doing the whole class. I am now, when I teach, doing almost the entire class 
it's it's more like I'm doing the, most of the class and demoing a couple things and then going to the demoing the the if there's more complicated poses and then I go and I give feedback like I come up <laughs> but but otherwise uh, I do the practice a lot so part of my physical practice on certain days it's when I teach and then I love pranayama meditation I've always gone in and out of pranayama is al almost always a, a consistency there are days where my, my practice is pranayama there are days where, where my practice is physical but to answer your question Sometimes it's before work, sometimes it's lunchtime, sometimes it's after work, sometimes it's after work and after teaching. There, when I started teaching, it threw a wrench into my practice, it threw a wrench into my practice because all the times that I would be practicing, I'm now teaching at. And what I had to let go of attachment to was practicing with teachers I wanted to practice with because it now became about what time can I practice? When is there a window for me to practice? So my practice, there is no rhyme or reason because it's based on, you know, my day job. I could, I could easily have five to seven Zoom meetings a day. And after I've had five in a row, I might want to go just walk around the block. Even if I have an hour free, it might not be, I might just need to get out of the, out of the house. So I'm going to have to practice later. So my, my daily schedule informs where and how and the length of my practice. Uh, I, uh, during COVID, I've had many times where my practice is several restorative poses. This has been a, a time where I needed to feed myself a little bit more care. And, uh, and I have always, always, whenever I took restorative classes, said, I need to do that a lot more. We all need it. Our nervous systems need that desperately. And in our current world, you know, we, are, we live with a baseline of stress. You know, there's just so much incoming at us. You know, we wake up, the phone, the, 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 the thing, they got to go here, got to go there, got to get information from these 17 different places, got to check these 17 different places of where my messages come in and connections with people. Suddenly I'm connecting with so many more people in a day than I ever did before. Like it just, never mind politics, never mind COVID, never mind insurrections and all that. It just raises the baseline. We're all multitasking. So the stress level is you already start with that going on. And so we need to do practices. Yes, we might want to do level two, three, level three, level 17 vinyasa flow classes. But we also, every one of us needs to incorporate, in my humble opinion, some restorative practices to help shift our nervous system. So there are many days where some restorative poses are my jam. Oh yeah, I love the block. Oh. That's money, block, and oh the yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. and, and I gotta tell you, when, um, uh, when I take Lisa's, Lisa Walford's pranayama class, she always has, she, 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 we do pranayama in some sometimes restorative informed 
poses, so we're up and on our back or whatever. And one day she said, and if you have something to cover your eyes with, cover your eyes. And now I am, I've always had one, but I never used it. But now I, the eye pillow, oh, let me tell you, that is a game changer. And I had used it here or there, but I just never did on, on the regular. And it, it helps drop me in. That little bit of, you know, covering the eyes, but that little bit of pressure, not too much, just a little bit of weight. I don't want to say pressure, that's the wrong word. A little bit of weight on the face. She might have ended the class and I'm still in that, that pose for 30 more minutes, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's great, it's great. Yeah, so, yeah, it's caused me to uh, incorporate practices and tools that I, said I was going to for a long time or thought about doing so and actually am am now much more so yeah practice looks different every day there's something about the weight on the eye sockets I mean because oh, when beautiful. do we ever get that never yeah but who doesn't like when a lover or a partner rubs their rubs your face Oh yeah. That always has always like immediately can put me out. Mm -hmm. It's self-love, self-lover, you know, mm -hmm. it's, 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 it, it, it's, it's different, but it's not, it emulates that same bit of weight on the face and it's not a caress, but it is mm -hmm. it's a soft satin you know, lavender infused, whatever, yeah. you know, it's, uh, you know, it's <laughs> knocks you right, takes you right, right in. Joe, will you help me with my pranayama? I've mentioned Lisa Walford now a few times. She's a long time. When I turn you on to this podcast, the first interview is with Lisa and she is a, she is a long, long time teacher and created the teacher training or was part of the creation of the teacher training at your works for decades ago and she is she used to go every year to india and study with the iyengar she's a senior iyengar teacher and she has this gift this great poetic gift and i'm going to see if there's some promotion or whatever to get you know two weeks free or whatever whatever they do I, I, I really think you might, if you have questions about pranayama and if, if you have a few props around, a few blankets and a block, uh, which I have a feeling you do, I really encourage you. I will, I will happily help you with it, but I also highly encourage you to take, start your morning off with Lisa's pranayama class. It is delicious. It, sh it will shift your day dramatically. Yeah. Okay. But anytime you and I can, you, you, I'm happy to, happy to go down that road with you as much as you'd like. How do I find her? Is she hmm. through Yoga Works? Uh, she is. I'll find like if they're, I'll find their promotional, uh, you know, whatever their, whatever they're oh. you know, uh, try try us out and then uh, i'll get you that link and you can try it out and um and you know you can try all the teachers and take my class but uh but i really want you to try hers and then separately i'm happy to happy to work with you anytime amazing yeah thank you yeah. you know there was something that you did in one of the classes you gave me this tiny adjustment with my hip 
and it shifted my whole life. <laughs> the way that I held myself in that part of my body and holding that pattern. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. Where you grip and you don't even realize yes. you're a compensator. Yeah. Yes. The compensation. You, what pose was it? Do you remember? It was triangle. Oh. So it wasn't even something hard. It was where I was pushing down on my foot and how my hips were rotating because I overextend. I'm so flexible. Sure. So you, you just moved me over an inch. And, you know, how we hold our bodies is how we hold in life too, right? So I just yeah. noticed in my reality, oh, whoa, there's a change there. Bravo. I'm glad you could tune into a shift. You know, we can get an adjustment and it can inform us in the moment. But sometimes we can learn, learn from the adjustment and it, it, it can carry with us off the mat if we're compensating or gripping or have a certain pattern of holding ourselves in the pose, we might have it when we're stepping on the gas and driving the car. We might have it when we're, I'm glad you said it shifted your life. I mean, that's a pretty big statement, but I'm, I'm glad because noticing it, I mean, this is, and this is so much of the practice, when you notice something you're doing on the mat and you let it go or you change it, you can notice it when it's happening when you're not on the mat and let it go and change it. Like that's, that, to me, that's meditation, right? Like you, when you sit to meditate, you know, you hear so many people say, I can't shut my mind off, but my mind is so busy. I've had times where I was meditating and I had an alarm set. And the next thing I knew, I was in the kitchen making coffee. I didn't remember getting up. My alarm didn't go off. I just like got so busy in my head that I just went with the thoughts, right? But the, the, the beauty of noticing how busy your mind is, it's not like, oh, I can't meditate. I'm, my mind is just racing all the time. When you try to quiet the mind and you notice that, okay? And that was, you chose five minutes to try to meditate that day. If that's going on in your mind when you are sitting quietly, then it's going on behind the scenes when you're behind the wheel of a car. It's going on in your mind when you're at the meeting at work. It's going on in your mind in the background when you are with your friends or your partner. And if it's that busy, it is driving some of your thought processes. You are making, potentially taking actions based on some of those thoughts. And it's unconscious. Sitting and saying, I can't meditate because my mind is so busy is a, in itself is a realization of what's going on in the mind. And that's a step forward. If you notice it there, even if you sit every day for a year and you do it five minutes a day and you are, all you really think you've acknowledged is the fact that your mind is racing and that you're not really meditating or whatever. If you do that every day for a year, you might see some of the same thought patterns come up. And if you do start to see that, then when you are behind the wheel of the car, 
or at the desk at work or whatever in the meeting or with the friend or the lover or the whatever or in the environment that triggers a certain series of thought processes behind the scene you might notice it when you're not sitting in meditation you might notice when it's happening off the mat and at that moment you can acknowledge it and if you can acknowledge it you have the choice to change the thought process you have the change to shift you have the the option in that moment even if it's briefly and you forget about it five seconds later you have the option to change the thought pattern you have the option to take a different route you're making the unconscious conscious and then choosing potentially choosing a different behavior based on your observation that's self-study that is taking action that is honing self-awareness it is perhaps delinking from a certain pattern and it's making effort in a new direction there's so many yogic philosophy yogic concepts in just sitting to meditate and saying and just noticing how busy your mind is never mind being successful at meditating yes so true and i think to add on to that is the importance of just the repetition and the discipline to sit down again because some days i sit down and i feel like i'm floating on a lotus flower some days there my mind is a train wreck and i just sit there like whoa what is going on in there and yeah. give it time to settle so it's so important not to judge because we are not these perfect static beings. We are constantly in flux, but just the practice itself is that moment to, and the opportunity to settle. And the not judgment is not judging, is taking action based on your observation. Right? It's, it's, it's amazing. By the way, I have to say this because I just noticed it and I noticed it in all the podcasts I've listened to. You are a great listener. Mm. You're a great listener. Um, when I get excited about something I'm talking with, with someone, I interject, not talking over you, but yeah, yeah, totally. You're a great, do you have a, do you have a background interviewing? I Is don't. This one of your many, no? I'm just so curious about interesting people. And for me, the way that I think, nothing, it, it doesn't come out right away. It takes me some time and you know, all the branches trigger off into, all these other avenues so i i just give that space to other people because you well oh see, thanks i just talked Joe. over you see i just <laughs> talked over you right? i didn't give space for you to finish your thought and i made the assumption that your thought was done so, you know what i mean you're great at that and i'm not it's hard to do over zoom too <laughs> yeah but I, I love listening it's how i learn but yes you are saying I don't know what I was saying. I, I, mean, I know what I was saying, but I, I think I was—I think I was sort of made my point. I guess I'm stressing the importance of these the importance of these practices, and I think a way into meditation is to sit and watch the breath, or try to breathe long, slow, and deep, counting to three or four on the inhale, and then counting to three or four on the exhale. Like meditate on the breath. If one can't just sit or, or, you know, I know a lot of people using apps and calm and headspace and all that stuff, and it's great. But if you are, you, you don't need an app to meditate. You don't, it might be helpful. I, I don't, I don't mean to uh, 
judge anyone for that. I don't I mean it like that. I mean, I'm just saying it's not necessary. You can still meditate. You have a tool within to anchor to, and that's your breath, or to try to anchor to. I think it was Ram Das who said this. I'm not sure, but whoever said it said the breath is the entry point to the here and the now, because mm. as soon as we are conscious of the breath, we're here. And I've always loved that because the mind can go in so many different directions and take us out of the moment and what's in front of us. I love that. Of course, Ram Das would have something so poetic and insightful to offer. And simple. That that to me is the is the beauty of a of a of a good teacher, to take concepts that are hard to get our heads around, and hard to put into practice, or somewhat nebulous concepts, and make them simple. There might be more to say after the simple, but hone it into hone it down to a core concept, a digestible concept, because a lot of this, a lot of this, uh, of this work is just show up, just get started. Sometimes that's the hardest part. And if you can get someone, just give them a clear, a seed to plant, just put in the ground. That's all they need. And that level of simplicity, I think it's, it's, it's just a mark of a great teacher. Mm-hmm. David Bowie used to always praise John Lennon in his interviews of his ability to create these pop songs from universal truths that everyone can relate to. Kind of I a similar, that. similar vibe. Totally. I'm now trying to pause and wait to see if you're done with your no! <laughs> Stop! <laughs> I'm, learn I'm learning. I'm learning. Uh, that, that's... Uh... That's amazing. That's, I love that. I love that. And it's so true if you think about so many of Lennon's offerings. Mm -hmm. But then I think, what about George? George had all these beautiful offerings. And then Paul, I mean, what a, what a coming together of, of potency. I went to the TM ashram in Rishikesh mm -hmm. where they wrote the White Album. Oh my God. The energy is so intense even though it's completely dilapidated and grown over i saw number nine the hut where they stayed in it was so cool it was so cool joe i felt like such a fangirl and then i walked into the caves where they had the huge structure of where hundreds of people would just sit and meditate in a tiny four by four room oh my when did you go there oh uh, maybe it's been almost 10 years ago maybe eight years ago I taught a yoga retreat in Goa. My friend has this company called Chaya Yoga Retreats, where you should hook up with her. I'll link you guys. She's oh, a friend. Great. She's a friend from the UK, but now lives in India. And it was her first one. And I went and I did that. And then I took the rest of the month to travel up north. I've always been such a Beatles fan, John and George and Paul. Ringo, not so much. Sorry, Ringo. I mean, one of my first tattoos, it's a Beatles lyric on my arm. So there, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, the last song, the end, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Such a great line. Yeah, and it's so true. Yeah, it is. So I made it my mission. I said, I have to go to Rishikesh. I have to check this place out. 
and I had been practicing TM for about a year or two anyway, so I wanted to see where it all came from. And you pay the security guy five bucks US, he opens the gate, lets you in, and you can see the place. I had no idea. I had no idea. I need to, I need to just, I need to back up though. First, that's amazing. And I had, I didn't even occur to me that one could go there and, and, and experience all that and be in that, be in that space. I got to give, I, I got to give Ringo some props though. I just, I, <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I, I don't have to, I don't have to go into it, but I couldn't let that pass without being like, Oh no, wait, wait, Ringo was, a, you know, integral part of, of, of what was of what that entity was and i think because he doesn't play a melodic instrument the melodic and harmonic offerings of that band were so great were just so profound that i think if one didn't play a, a melodic or harmonic instrument they would simply be overshadowed even if they were the perfect complement so that the melodic and the harmonic offerings could flourish to the to the place they did. So just props to Ringo. That's all. You're Thank right. You. You're right. Yeah. He's the glue. Totally. Yeah. The unspoken yeah. glue. You're right. My bad. <laughs> yeah. so good. So good. I'll tell you another thing because you you, you mentioned Yoko early, but uh there at Berkeley, there was for a time. I'm not sure if it still is there, but there. Uh, when I say Berkeley, we're on the West Coast. People think Berkeley, Northern California, but at Berkeley College of Music in Boston, there was a songwriting class in the songwriting major called the Songwriting Style or the Songwriting of John Lennon. And the teacher was a I was not a songwriting major but the, the I, I learned this because a few people told me this the teacher was was as versed as one could be in the Beatles and John Lennon and heavy and the you know as you know Yo, as I'm sure you know Yoko is Yoko Ono is polarizing for some folks for some Beatles fans and he would come into the class and Yoko I think contributing a lot a lot to his class and for his class and so he would come in and he would say he would give like lay ground rules. And one of the ground rules w w was there will be no Yoko bashing in this class. And he would go on this whole, he would, he would speak to Yoko's contributions and to the class and to John and all that. And, you know, there are people who, when I say bash might be around, criticize, have whatever. There are people who do that just because they heard other people do it. And they know nothing about Yoko Ono. Anyway, I thought you'd find it interesting because you said you saw Plastic Ono Band, uh, and I just thought that that was that was a it was a it was a wonderful offering that he would that he would teach that class, but he would also pay great honor and respect to to the full picture. Yeah, I think a lot of people forget that people change and they grow and the Beatles were not meant to last forever. They were so young when they were a group. Of course, they're going to evolve and change and want to express themselves. They're artists. Mm -hmm. And prolific. Yes, yes. Yeah. And individuals. Extremely. Yeah, I love John Lennon's first solo album. 
and Paul's too. I saw Paul at Barclays in Brooklyn. Oh, nice, nice. I've seen him a couple of times too. He's, what a talent. I mean, all of them, all of them, but what a talent. You know, I, I, was, I was talking about this the other day and, you know, John and Paul would snip at each other a little bit in the press after the Beatles broke up and John Lennon said something like, oh, Paul, he's just writing all those silly love songs. So McCartney goes and writes the song, Silly Love Song. And, and the, the song itself has like seven different parts in it, all which are great songs unto themselves if one wanted to make that a song. But he put them all into one song and it's this timeless classic. Like they could, the fact that they could do that with such ease in the pop idiom, which is a very challenging place to be, it's not, you know, I think some people may, may consider pop, like, I don't know if the word is syrupy or throw away or whatever. And I'm sure there's that aspect of, to it, to some offerings in that, in that realm. Being able to create something that is meaningful to such a wide swath of people and to have it have that level of craftspersonship is Rare, rare, hard place to live. McCartney has always lived in that realm. Mm -hmm. Do you ever think about how strange of a time it must have been in the U.S. when they were first coming over and touring and the U.S. were burning their music and their tours? Yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a, that's, no, I can't, I can't, I can't get my head around it. I can't get my head around it at all. Uh, speaking of burning, you just made me think of this. Have you seen the Bee Gees documentary? No. Okay. First of all, to the Beatles and them coming to the U.S. I, I listened to, a, 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 I listened to a lot of audiobooks, uh, Walking the Dogs, and I always listen to audiobooks. And I listened to many, 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 like obsessively music biographies. And I can't tell you how many musicians in all these different books, all different styles, decided they wanted, wanted to be musicians when they saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. I'm getting chills just thinking about it. So many, all these different books written at different times like these these people don't aren't, aren't like coordinating on what they're going to put in their books so many of them called that out anyway you mentioned burning i highly highly like tomorrow it's this good highly encourage you to see the bg's documentary the new one i think there's okay. one, the new one and they have a they have a much much uh, more expansive career than I think a lot of people realize. They might know a song or two, but they don't—they just don't realize the 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 over overarching the the umbrella of it. And so that in itself is interesting. But when the Bee Gees had the the disco, the Saturday Night Fever. That was a resurgence for them. That wasn't them breaking out. That was a resurgence for them. And they were making music. They were not trying to make disco music. 
and there's this infamous riot. I don't know if it was a riot. This infamous going on of, of burning records. This is how I got there when you mentioned that. Of burning disco records. Disco sucks was this thing. And there was this one DJ and I think it was in Chicago. And there was a doubleheader of a baseball game. And he somehow set up this promotion of uh, everyone bring your vinyl disco records. And we're going to blow them up. At, bring disco records. We're going to blow them up at between the games. And so he did this promotion and it was promoted. I don't know how you would never get away with doing this today. Uh, and so he did this and it started a riot. The second game never happened. Uh, and the Bee Gees were afterwards, well, there's two points to this. One is the Bee Gees afterwards were, were like, we're, what, why are you looping us? Yeah, we were attached to a disco movie, but we're just we're just making songs. And those songs, I mean, there are so many hits on that record because they're great songs, not because they're great disco songs. They're great songs. And they were influenced by the time. But afterwards, people, I mean, people basically turned off to the Bee Gees. And the Bee Gees were like, why... We've made all these, all this different music and all these different genres, and we're not a disco band. We are a band. And we make music we like, and this is what came out. And then the movie was popular. Anyway, there's that. It's a really interesting documentary. But also, in this documentary, there was they showed one of the ushers at the game, and he's black. And he said he saw people coming in with all these records and he sees, and he said to one of his, I don't know, his boss or his coworker, like, these aren't, some of these, a lot of these coming in are not disco records. They're records by black musicians, Stevie Wonder, you know, Al Green. And so it wasn't necessarily an anti-disco, it was, no. there was an aspect of it, probably a larger one. You know, I, I don't know a lot about it. In fact, it's inspired me to go learn more about it. No uh, way. Anti-black, homophobic. There was uh, a lot of gay culture infused into what became disco. And so there was a lot more in that. Uh. I, you know, I growing up, privileged white guy. Hey, it's an anti-disco. I heard about this, right? Wow, that sucks. That disco sucks, right? or I say riot, I, I don't know if it turned into a riot riot, but it certainly turned into a, a bit of a kerfuffle at the, at, the, at, at the stadium. But there's a much more insidious aspect to it that, of course, I, my privilege, I'd never, it, until it was brought up here. And as soon as he, the usher started bringing it up, uh, my girlfriend, who is Latina, said, I always knew that that was, that there was racism and there was, you know, and there was, there was homophobia in that, in that event. And my eyes have been opened. Yeah. And, and it's yeah. an amazing documentary. So I highly recommend you see it. Sorry to catch Yes. Up. Yes. I definitely will. I mean, that makes sense, man. I feel like they probably feel like such idiots now. Where would music be without a black artist? <laughs> 
Duh. I know. I know. My dog is named after Stevie Wonder, though. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I love that. Cody Wonder is his name. I wanted him to stay curious and open to the world. And then I wanted to bring in an old school soul singer from the 70s in, too. I love it. I love that. Do you ever hear about his story when uh, Pharrell and Snoop Dogg bring him in for that song, California Roll? No. It's a really funny story. So Snoop loves pot and (laughs) he gets really stoned and baked in the studio and Pharrell doesn't really smoke like that. So Pharrell is contact high beyond and they bring Stevie in and Stevie's in the booth and you know, he's blind and he's just sitting there. But Pharrell is so high in front of the computer and in front of the board that he can't speak. So Snoop's like, Pharrell, produce him! (laughs) And he couldn't. So Snoop was like, all right, Stevie, just do your thing. So that's why in the song, it's Stevie going, ah. I mean, he's not doing too much. It's just the flavors of (laughs) Talk about another gargantuan talent. Mm. Stevie Wonder. Oh, my word. Gargantuan. Prodigy. I once saw this, this uh, it was a music industry event, but it was Stevie and a drummer. They did so many of Stevie's hits, just the two of them. Oh, wow. And then Stevie went to the drums and started playing the drums, which I knew he did, but to see him do that in a very sort of intimate experience. And he, you know, he's playing drums and singing Boogie on Reggae Woman or something like, it was just like mind blowing. He is so talented. He's so talented. I love Stevie Wonder. Oh my God, you saw him play the drums and sing with only one person? Yeah, yeah. I have some, I have some photos of it I will, I will uh, send to you. It was, you know, there's, there's, uh, yeah, it was just, it was a, it was a industry event of some sort that I somehow happened a invite to. It was it was very special. I met him once too. I met him once too, and he was I. I got a photo with him, and then the photographer disappeared. It was it was another event. He was putting out an album, and several of us came in to to listen to it ahead of time. It was a special event, and he. We all got to meet. We we're all in line, and I had a, like a disposable camera. I was going to take a photo and the photographer was like, no, I got it, man. And I, I, I just, I you know, I just thanked him. Like, I didn't know what else to say to him. I was like, thank you so much. And he grabbed my hand and he just, he put his other hand on mine and we both turned and he took the picture and I was floating on air for days. I, I, again, hair standing up on the end of my arm. Uh, and, and then the photographer disappeared and we never got, we never, we never got the photos. I have the memory, I have the memory, uh, and it was wonderful, but, you know, one of my all-time, like, mm-hmm. oh. <laughs> oh my God, you have to find him. Where did he yeah, go? He's gone. No, it was someone's <laughs> professional photographer, and he just, it never came through. It's, Got they're it. gone. They're gone. And it there were probably 30 of us. We all got individual. It wasn't a group photo. We all got individual. Like he was so kind and took the time to do it. He had a singing along, clapping along, like the whole. Yeah, 
Yeah. That was a regret, not a game. <laughs> <laughs> With Stevie Wonder. <laughs> Have you ever seen Ray Charles live? It's so funny you say that. I literally today finished a Ray Charles autobiography or a biography of Ray Charles today. So funny you asked that. I never saw him and I, I kicked myself for not seeing him. The biography is great. Wow. He's. What a life. He doesn't mince words. Mm. He does have, not mince words. Have you seen his performance at the uh, Quincy Jones tribute night at the JFK Center? I don't know. Ooh. I don't, I don't, I don't believe, not off the top of my head, but I might know it if I saw it. All right. I'm going to send it to you. You're going to bawl your eyes hey. out. Oh <laughs> it is so beautiful. Okay. I got another one. I'm in. Okay. So, you know, Jamie Foxx, right? Of course. So before he was the Jamie Foxx that we know today, he was just a stand-up comedian that not a lot of people knew about, but he threw these amazing parties that everyone would come to. And he had this one party, Whitney Houston and Bobby Brown show up. It's when they're married, they're together. I think it was early on in their relationship. And it's karaoke night. So they're all singing karaoke in the house, in the living room, maybe 100, 200 people there. Jamie goes off and he tells a story this way where he just hears Whitney start to sing. And she sang, and I will always love you, karaoke in his living room. Wow. And he has it somewhere in a vault on video. I bet he does. <laughs> Can you imagine hearing that voice in no, that setting? No, I, can't. I can't. Wow. Do you know who podcaster and the author Tim Ferriss is? I'm sure you've heard of him. No, I've never listened. It's all right. It's all right. He, the point is that he has a podcast episode two episodes with Jamie Foxx that are fantastic. Oh, okay. They're fantastic. We're going to have to watch this back just to see what it is that yeah. we are going to send each other. Cause I'm not taking notes and I have cobwebs as I've mentioned, but um, I, it's, it's fantastic. I, you, you should give that a listen to. It's from a couple of years ago. Uh, it's great. It's great. You just see all the glory that is Jamie Foxx and just how insanely talented that guy is oh my god in ray? and intelligent say again in ray his performance yeah 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 oh i mean what can't he do i know <laughs> i mean he's amazing at imitations right he's amazing amazing at emulating other people comedy acting singing he's a great singer he's very witty he's extremely witty he's so quick he's so sharp he's he's just another one of these these higher higher plane folks mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's another Woo! yes artist appreciation hour <laughs> i i it's so funny i i really had I wasn't sure what we were going to talk about. 
I, I was like, Chloe, do you really want to have me on? Like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> we've been talking for two hours, and I didn't realize you were going to talk about music so much. It just makes me so happy. This is great. I mean, I, I talk about music. I'll talk about yoga, but I just I, I didn't know if I was going to really uh, give you anything uh, of note. And I just this has been so enjoyable. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah. Yes. Likewise. Thank you for giving me the time to pick your brain. Oh my God, it's my, it's amazing. Yes, it's fantastic. Yes. Thank you so much, Joe. I appreciate it. If, I know we talked a lot about yoga, but I don't know if I actually answered more than two questions. <laughs> oh, don't worry. It's more conversational format anyways. I really just wanted you on because you have so much to share. Oh, you're very kind. You're very kind. I really think, though, that you need to also have someone interview you. And that means someone who who is going to listen to your podcast and take these tidbits that you have just some of the, what you've dropped about your experiences, which is, I'm sure, a small version, portion of what your experience have been in your life. But to ask you questions just about those, I'm sure we'll open up many more, much more conversation. But, you know, I know you do two-part interviews with people sometimes. It might be like the four or five-part Chloe interview. Nah, who wants to know that much about me? <laughs> it's, you, you, you seem to have a... a quite a fascinating and interesting life and multifaceted. And I think a lot of people would. Well, thank you, Joe. Yes. I will definitely have that on my to-do list when I find the right person. It has to be as well to be on the other Yeah, yeah, of that. course. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Someone where there's a very natural rhythm for you and you can feel open and comfortable and yeah. And then you get to edit it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> This is by far the long, the most you and I have ever have ever talked. I know it's really, been a long time coming. Yeah, I'm really glad. I'm really glad. What a lovely experience for me to have. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate your time. Take care. Thank you, Chloe. Bye bye. bye.